verses 18 to 25, Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 from verse 18. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who are angry at him shall be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. A very definite uh, assurance there to God's people. An assurance that is declared and set forth in God's word and even sworn by him in his own name. Would you turn please to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians 1 verses 12 to 22. The text for the sermon is verses 19 to 22 and after that I'll read from the Westminster Confession in chapter 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 from verse 12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand And I hope you will understand until the end. Just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours, in the day of our Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I intended at first to come to you, that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you, and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or that which I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? 
that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. But God is faithful. Our word to you is not yes and no. And then our text from verse 19 to 22. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as may be the promises of God, in him they are yes. Wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And then if you have a look in your bulletin, you should find a copy of Westminster 18, chapter 18, articles 1 and 2. This is the chapter that we now move on to, chapter 18, which deals with assurance of grace and salvation. And in that respect, it follows on from chapter 17, which speaks of God's preserving grace, and then chapter 18, how that gives us assurance. There's two articles. Article 1. Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favour of God, and being in the favour of God and a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavouring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. And Then Article 2. This certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption." Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we go on in the Christian life, will you help us to appreciate more and more the riches of your grace, the depth of your love as revealed in your word? Will you grow also in us a grateful response to this growth in knowledge? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, how do you convince someone that you're telling the truth, that you're being honest? How do you convince someone when they seem to be a little bit suspicious about you? Not always easy. Well, there's a number of things you might do. You might try to assure and reassure them with more words, maybe throwing in words like promise, 
promise you, I'm telling the truth, you might uh, swear, you might make an oath, calling on God as witness to the truth of what you're saying. You might even call down a curse, as some do, upon themselves if they fail to prove trustworthy, cross my heart and hope to die. Or in other cases, you might leave a token to uh, guarantee your return with better proof. I've been in this situation a couple of times, I must confess, where I've left my uh, drive card home. When I went to the petrol station, filled up the car, the church uh, van with uh, petrol, and then uh, found I didn't have the means to pay for it. And uh, sometimes, uh, on those occasions, I've uh, left proof of ID with them while I ran home and got got my card, uh, leaving something to guarantee that I'll come back with better proof that what I was saying was correct. Or perhaps you leave a deposit sometimes so that you might uh, encourage people to understand that you don't want to forego that deposit, which you will have to do if you don't follow through with the rest of the payment. So these are some of the ways that we try and reassure the suspicious. All right then, but how does the Lord convince sinners that he always tells the truth and will always keep all of his promises, including the promise of salvation, as we take that to ourselves? Uh, We may not doubt God himself, but how does God reassure us that in this question of our own salvation, am I saved? Not just is there salvation from God, but am I saved? And by rights, of course, no one should ever question God or doubt him. But he graciously gives us assurances and reassurances, not only to help us understand where we stand before him, but also assurances and reassurances that when he speaks, we can take that as an absolute. We can be absolutely certain about his promises. Three ways in our text that the Lord helps us in our weakness for this, uh, with this kind of thing, because uh, even though we, we understand that God does not lie, that he always tells the truth, nevertheless, uh, because of our weakness, we are inclined to doubts. Doubts about ourselves, uh, doubts about God, and the promises that he gives in his word. And so he condescends to help us in our weakness, and does so in this text in three ways. First of all, he gives us assurance from the word. Secondly, assurance from the son. And thirdly, assurance from the spirit. Assurance from the word, the son, and the spirit. Now, I mentioned uh, a few moments ago about people being suspicious about us, uh, not being sure whether we're telling the truth. And that was actually something like the situation here in this letter to the Corinthians, in the relationship the Apostle Apostle Paul and his co-workers had with the Corinthians. They thought, the Corinthians thought, that the Apostle Paul was two-faced, that he was a man who flip-flopped, that he was a man who said yes one moment, and then the next moment he said no on the very same matter. Or perhaps a man who gave different answers to different people saying yes to one person and no to another about the same matter. Or perhaps a man who made things deliberately very ambiguous, so that you couldn't really be sure whether he meant yes or no. Whichever of those cases, 
Apparently, there were some in Corinth who did not trust the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle wants to reassure the Corinthians that they can trust his preaching and his teaching, that his preaching and his teaching is not yes and no at the same time, and it had better not be yes and no at the same time, because the apostolic ministry was the preaching and teaching of the very Word of God. And you can't afford to play around with the word of God and be yes and no when it comes to that. We see that the word of God and assurance from it is very much in view here in that the Apostle Paul um, speaks of his preaching in verse 19 and then goes on in the very next verse to talk about the promises of God. He says, as many as are the promises of God... In other words, you can take all of them or you can take any one of those promises in any part of Scripture. And these are the things that I am preaching, he's saying. These are the things that are being preached by the apostles. And these promises are yes. They are not yes and no. They are not ambiguous. They are not contradictory. And we can therefore say amen to those promises, as we do as a congregation. Amen means faithful, true, reliable, and trustworthy. And we can say that about the whole of the scripture, including every single one of its promises. And if that were not so, if the word of God were not the, the, complete, the truth fully and completely so, inerrantly and infallibly so, if this were not the case, then we would have no assurance of salvation at all. In fact, we would have no assurance that God exists because where's our primary proof of that in the Word of God? We would have no assurance that God has spoken to us. How do we know that this is the Word of God? Because the Word of God says so. That's the proof. Actually, there are a lot of um, presuppositions that are tied up in this. Uh, One of those is that the God of the Bible is the living God. Another one is that the living God has spoken inerrantly and infallibly so that we might know him and be saved. Yet another related to that, the teaching that God is truth and he only ever speaks truth. Another that he is unchanging and unchangeable, the same yesterday, today and forever. Another that he is sovereign, infinitely well able to keep all his promises, a God who can never ever be thwarted, nothing, no one can ever make him or force him to go back on what he has promised. All of these things are tied up with our assurance that we can take what is said about that in the Bible seriously because of these truths about God. And this is why also when we say amen, As a response to what we hear in Scripture, we are saying that we believe all of these things and recognize that in these promises that we read in the Bible, whether in the Old or the New Testament, we have that which is true and reliable and trustworthy and faithful and it cannot be undone or reversed or thwarted because it comes from the mouth of the God who himself is true and reliable and trustworthy and faithful and sovereign. Having laid that groundwork, I'd like to ask you to consider for a moment 
just a, a small sample of some of those promises. Take, for example, 1 John 5, verse 12. Think about these verses that I'm going to uh, lay before you here. Uh, 1 John 5, verse 12. He who has the Son has life. John 5, verse 24. He who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. John 10, verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, speaking of the elect, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we could spend a lot of time, we could spend the, the whole of this hour of worship if we wanted to, just reading one scripture passage after another. Hundreds and hundreds of them which give us the same assurances. You turn to God in faith, you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have salvation once and for all. That's the language used. And not only are those promises... But those things are part of God's covenant promises. They are things that he has taken. And he has sworn on oath regarding these things in order to reassure us. And there's not a single one of those things, not a single one of those verses that I just read that is yes and actually no at the same time. All of them are yes and yes. Clear, unambiguous, non-contradictory, and unable to be turned aside by anything or anyone. Faithful, reliable, true, trustworthy, irrevocable promises. These promises provide what some have called objective assurance. Subjective has more to do with the individual's perspective. It has more to do with the individual's viewpoint and uh, feelings and experiences and so on. Objective is something outside of us. And these promises are not something we invent from within us, from within our own perspective on life. These are things that come to us from the outside. They come from God himself to us. They are objective promises which assure us that the Lord saves and preserves every single person who believes in his Son irrespective of how you feel about yourself on any one day. Because I think we know it, our feelings on any one day, our feelings go up and down and all over the place. They vary. And our feelings may be mistaken. But the promises of God are infallible and inerrant, unchangeable, reliable, trustworthy, true and faithful. And that is the objective basis for the individual's assurance of salvation. As per the Westminster 18 Article 2, an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. Now when it comes to the objective basis of our confidence, we cannot separate the Lord Jesus and his word for us from the promises of God's word. Our second point, assurance from the Son. 
This really shouldn't surprise us because the written word is, after all, from, about, and fulfilled by the word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. In preaching the word, as Paul and the other apostles and Paul's co-workers did, in preaching the word, they were, in fact, preaching Christ. In verse 19, the apostle says, The Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, was not yes and no. In other words, he himself was not ambiguous, contradictory, unreliable, changeable, and so forth. On the contrary. And in verse 20, he says, For as many as are the promises of God in him, in Christ, they are yes. Not yes and no, but yes. And he goes on to say, Through him, through Christ, is our amen. In fact, in Revelation 3 verse 14, the Lord Jesus himself is described as the amen. It's not just something we say. Christ is the amen. The amen, the faithful and true witness. Uh, That is how reliable and trustworthy he is and his work is. This is true for several reasons. First, because Jesus is God. And therefore, as God, he is the truth. As God, he is unchanging and unchangeable. He is sovereign. As God, he speaks only truth and cannot lie or fail to keep his word. That's one of the reasons why there's this strong connection here and we get assurance from Christ himself. Not just from the Bible, but also from Christ himself. Another reason that we get assurance from Christ himself is because he himself in his work is the ground of the promises of salvation as the second person of the Trinity. It is in particular to the Lord Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity to whom the elect were given before the world began to save us. His work on the cross, his life of perfect obedience, his resurrection, his ascension, his heavenly intercession for us, these things that are works of the Lord Jesus Christ, these are irrevocable and unstoppable works. No one can in the least, and no force on this earth can in the least, undermine that work of the Lord Jesus Christ at any point or any of those things he has done. Related to that, he is the one who fulfills all the promises. So again, the promise of the word is closely intertwined with the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself is the only ground of our assurance. And his word objectively tells us all we need to know about that. And that is our objective assurance of salvation found, yes, found in the word of God and its promises, but found also in the Lord Jesus Christ with whom those promises are tied up. This is why the reformers emphasized that assurance is very strongly connected with fixing our eyes upon the author and perfecter of faith, Jesus Christ, as per Hebrews 12, verse 2. Rather than looking at our own works, as Roman Catholicism did. 
because Roman Catholicism historically looked with one eye on Christ and the other eye on the works of the, uh, the believer, in their view, um, because of that, all they could come up with was a kind of conjecture, a kind of wishful thinking that they would be saved. It couldn't be more than wishful thinking because they had an eye on their own works. And what confidence can anybody put in our works, the works of man, fallen man? Faith is a gift that causes us to fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ. That enables us to learn from that a saving knowledge and a saving commitment to him. And what also comes with that, that faith brings us assurance when we believe what the Lord Jesus says about those who are joined to him and we take that to our hearts including these promises of assurance. And you see, we have to do that before we start looking at ourselves. If we look at ourselves, we see failures. No assurance, only uncertainty and doubt. But if you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, you see one who covers our sins and covers our failures and by what he has done and the promises that are in him gives us assurance. This is why the Westminster in the first article here says that those who may be certainly assured, it's not the hypocrites, not the unregenerate, not those with carnal presumptions, uh, meaning people who either trust in their own deeds to save them or who are ignoring their own wickedness while pretending that everything is okay. But know that assurance, those who are assured, are such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity. If that relationship with the Lord Jesus is there in your life, if that is clear to you, then you can start to look at the evidence in your own life and interpret it in light of that faith in Christ. Rather than looking at yourself first and using your own good works and your own degree of holiness and using that to prove faith in Christ, no, you start the other way around. You look first at Christ and then you look at yourself in him and interpret your life in light of, of him. Faith in Christ right relationship with God through Christ, that is the main thing in assurance. The evidences in your way of living, which follow from knowing Christ, it's important, but it's secondary. Remember, the promises of God are not yes and yes in your behaviour. They are yes and yes in Christ. And it's not you and your works that are the Amen, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Amen. But our Amen at the same time condemns us if it's just a pretense. It must be a sincere response to fixing our eyes upon the Lord Jesus and trusting in his work for you. Secondary evidences of your good works always follow the primary, the Lord Jesus, the primary thing, the work the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Well, the giving of assurance is actually a 
triune work. God establishes, God established the apostles. He established the Corinthians in Christ and anointed them. As I say, he did so in Christ, the Son, and the promises are yes and amen in Christ, in him. So Father and Son, but also that anointing that comes from God, the anointing that makes us little Christs, little anointed prophets, priests and kings in the Lord Jesus, that anointing is an anointing with the Holy Spirit. Our third and final point, assurance from the Spirit. I'd like to uh, draw your attention to the, the reassuring language that is used here. There's a lot more in this than meets the eye in verses 21 and 22. God establishes us. It means he makes us firm and stable. And the language here means that he keeps on doing that. He does it in an ongoing way. But he does it either because or after, whichever way you want to look at it, because or after the Holy Spirit sealed us. And that word sealed there uses a form of language that implies something once and for all. Having been given the Holy Spirit, and that language implies given once and for all, the Holy Spirit given in our hearts as a pledge. And even the term having anointed again means that once for all action on the Spirit on God's part. Moreover, the idea of sealing itself implies assurance because it means something that's marked out as being authentic, legitimate, secure, because it belongs in this case to the Lord. We belong to the Lord and we have, as it were, his seal of approval on us, a seal of approval that cannot be broken. Similarly, with the idea of the Holy Spirit as pledge, that also means assurance because a pledge is an assure, is a, it's a deposit given as a guarantee of a full amount to follow later. You have the Holy Spirit in your life, working in your life, dwelling within you as in a temple. You have a pledge, a kind of first instalment, a first fruit as a foretaste of the whole crop of what God will give you later through that same Spirit. The Holy Spirit does these things by granting us the new birth, the gift of faith, so we can fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us a faith that enables us to trust the promises of God, that objective assurance as well. The Spirit sanctifies us progressively so that we start to see in our lives secondary evidences in our holy living. And we are transformed more and more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives us a spirit of adoption, sonship, enabling us to sense that we are indeed children of God, even though there are days when we feel very, very far from it. But again and again, the Spirit reassures us and reminds us with that sense that, that we are children of God and these promises are for us. He does that so that we can call God Abba, Father, and pray to the Father and recognize that the promises he has given his adopted sons and daughters are promises for me too. We can say that of ourselves. There's your real me too movement. That is the best me too movement, the one that says these promises are for me too. 
And the Spirit teaches that as he works with the Word of God to assure and reassure and re-reassure because we need it so often of our position before God. It is true, of course, as the Westminster says in the first article here, that there are hypocrites. There are pretenders who falsely claim that they are sons. That is a fact, but it ought not to disturb us unduly. Uh, There are some in our society who practice uh, benefit fraud. And I've come across a couple of cases of that since I've been in New Zealand, not from within our members, I have to say, but uh, people from the society in general uh, who have uh, carried out some really astounding amounts of benefit fraud. And these people, no doubt, stand in the wind's office alongside those with a legitimate claim. So what should the people with a legitimate claim do? Recognise, well, uh, some people are false in their claims, maybe I am too, we better all leave. And they all walk out of the wind's office. Might save the government some money, but uh, that's a a wrong way of looking at it. Because there are illegitimate claimants does not mean you are illegitimate. Their existence should not cause, cause legitimate claimants to give up. Well, our legitimacy is not in ourselves. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we are joined by faith, a faith wrought by word and spirit by the triune God himself. We are established by God. If you are practicing benefit fraud with him, then yes, you have every right to be dismayed, and you should be. But if you believe in the Son of God, and you can say that you love him, and you confess him as per the scripture, then trust also his many assurances and reassurances and re-reassurances. You have been given those things legitimately. His promise of benefits is not fraud. It is not fraud as it comes from him. Neither is your claim upon them in him if you believe in him. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, despite all you do for us, the spirit of adoption that you give to your children, the certain promises in your word, centered and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and all the work he did for us, assuring all who believe in him of eternal salvation. Yet, Father, we remain weak and doubting. And the sense of that assurance fluctuates in our lives. Father, we pray that you would increase our awareness that we may cling more fervently to our certain hope as we keep our eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Note the words of the psalm, in full assurance of thy grace. Uh, Not only is the the assurance of salvation possible for the Christian, the gift of faith comes packed with it with that assurance that we can lay hold of and God enables us to do so, even if we don't always live out of it as we should. Psalter hymn 127, stanzas 1 to 4. We'll stand to sing and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology. 127, stanzas 1 to 4.
blessing is our doxology. We sing from the Psalter Hymnal number 280, stanzas 1 and 3. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs>